0: The metaphor we like to use is like there's trellis and there's vine. Like a a vine without a trellis can only grow so big because it can get like three or four inches off the ground. But with the trellis, the vine can grow big and the vine can bear lots of fruit. But the trellis does serve the vine. The vine does not serve the trellis. And so increased giving, increased structure, increased programs are us building bigger trellises. But ultimately, the real thing is the vine.
1: Welcome to another episode of In Progress with Motion Tactic. Um, Our job is to meet with business leaders and community leaders and talk about how they've grown their organization. So I'm excited for today's episode. We have Seth Trout with us today. Seth is the associate pastor of ministries at Redemption Gateway, which is a Christian church in Arizona. Seth joined Redemption in 2016 and has since seen his church double in size, which is really cool to hear about. Seth will talk about the unique challenges that churches face as they try to grow, and he'll provide a really cool inside look at what the operations of running a church really look like. I personally think that today's social climate is really difficult to navigate, and I love hearing how Seth remains faithful to his job amongst all the politics distractions that can oftentimes plague our communities. Seth is a super smart dude, and he faces these difficult topics with a lot of wisdom and grace. Um, Seth and his friend Luke run a podcast called Kingdom and Culture, where they so-called critique the hell out of culture. So be sure to check that out if you want to learn more about the intersection of Christianity and culture. So let's listen. Welcome to In Progress with Motion Tactic. Today we have Seth Trout in the studio. What's up, man?
0: Good to see you, Kyle. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, you're all hyped up. I like it.
0: I am hyped up. I got some cold brew from Cartel Coffee to go, and then went straight to Press and also got tea. Wow. I'm a longtime Tempe guy, and so whenever I come into Tempe, I live in Gilbert now, I like have to go to Cartel, even if they're not sitting people, to get a cold brew. It's like in my blood.
1: And if that's not enough, you go to Press after.
0: Yeah, well, I need somewhere to sit, and yeah. Cartel's still a little bit corona-cautious, Yeah, and Press is not so i sat there
1: that's good man
0: mm-hmm. well tempe born and raised huh yeah i was uh grew up on mcclintock and southern tempe and then when i moved away from home i moved a mile away and when i got married and moved a mile further <laughs> <laughs> and now i live in gilbert a whole 15 minutes away yeah so i've not fallen far from the tree yet
1: yeah it's much better out in gilbert
0: well, you know, second safest city in the largest 100 cities in the U.S. That came out yesterday in some study. Wow. So if you want to be living an insular life, I highly recommend Gilbert.
1: Yeah, I feel the same way. It's I have born and raised in Gilbert, and it's like I don't want to go anywhere else. I Tempe doesn't feel as safe
2: at all. Like Tempe, I, I feel like after the light changes, there's still six cars going through, and that like you're always at risk of being T-boned when you're driving in Tempe. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's all the folks. I mean, I went to ASU, go devils, but a lot of the people who go to ASU, it's because that was their only option. Maybe that's not true. <laughs> yeah. I think ASU is trying to change that um, stigma. Number one in innovation. That's right. Not number one in traffic laws.
1: <laughs> well, sweet dude. Um, a lot of folks we've had on the podcast have been business leaders, community leaders. And with you in particular, um, you helped lead a church in Gilbert or Mesa, I guess. Yeah, I guess
0: technically it's cool. Mesa, but functionally it's it's right in between Gilbert and Queen Creek. Yeah. So it's probably twenty percent, even though our address is Mesa, maybe only fifteen to twenty percent of people live in Mesa. The bulk of our folks live in Santan Valley, Queen Creek, Gilbert.
1: Interesting. Sweet man. Well tell us a little bit about how like why why you chose the ministry route from a a younger age and how you got connected and um, and hired at Redemption Gateway. Love to hear that background, and we can jump into some of the organizational things.
0: Yeah, the big idea it started out, I grew up in the church and was probably just a typical kind of lukewarm, not super into it. My parents do this church attendee, but it was towards the end of high school when I feel like I actually became convinced that of the gospel of, of Jesus. And I and I got personally sold out. Um, and I still didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up, per se. But I started serving a ton of the church, serving local church. And I signed up to go to ASU, got a double major in philosophy and psychology. And I was serving in the church leading music. So I was like a, a music guy. For the first four years, I was on staff at a church. So they hired me when I turned 18, and I was leading music for the different deals at Grace Community Church. And it was probably as I got further into my philosophy degree that I started reading a bunch about, um, the background of the scriptures, uh, how they apply, um, present day sociology, how to bridge the gap between past cultures and present cultures, how to help people understand the Bible in a way that actually changes their life. And it's not just like a, a private make my funerals meaningful situation, <laughs> but it's actually like a, it, it bleeds into the, the grind of daily existence. And to be frank, I started hearing a bunch of really, really bad preaching, and I never thought I was going to be like good at it. But I thought I could do better than that. And if that person's getting paid to do it, the supply of quality the quality supply must be low. I know the demand is high because there are people who want to know and understand the Bible. Yeah, but I remember thinking like if those people are getting paid to do this then holy smokes. And and, and at that point, it wasn't just like a career choice. I was actually thinking like, I want people to know this and believe it and be excited about it. And that boring, unhelpful preacher is not helping that. And so I started volunteering to preach in different contexts and studying and synthesizing and applying. And that started going pretty well at Grace in particular in that season, which where I was, it was a bit of a vacuum of leadership development. And so I remember seeing... Tyler Johnson at Cartel Coffee in Tembi and thinking like, hey, I know that guy, he leads a church. I respect him as a man. I've heard a couple of his sermons. And so I just walked up to my cartel and was like, hey, man, I work at Grace. I'm 22, working on my Master Divinity at Phoenix Seminary. Could we get coffee sometime? And he's like, sure. And so he kind of gave me a lot of time, even when I wasn't necessarily working for him, I think because he believed in that raising up young leaders is important. Mm-hmm. And he also recognized that there were a lot of churches in the area that had uh, like a vacuum of mentorship or like a development pipeline. And so Tyler at uh, Redemption and then another guy named Jim at Redemption 10B and even Ricardo at Redemption 10 at the time. I just remember meeting a lot of these Redemption men and being impressed by them in the way they didn't take themselves seriously. Yeah. Their curiosity, their humility, and at the same time, their conviction – And this being this weird balance of humility and conviction and thinking like, man, I would love to work there. And then it was literally a couple years later, I'd been on staff at Grace a full seven years at this time. I was like a small groups pastor, college pastor, music pastor, overseeing a variety of administrative functions. So, I'd kind of seen like the the background to like the nonprofit business management aspect of the church, which they do not teach you in seminary at all. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. They
1: don't teach us that either. Yeah, so no one does. (laughs) We didn't get a business degree, so here we are just figuring it out. (laughs) Yeah,
0: so it's a lot of. I know what the Hebrew of the book of Jeremiah is, but I need to give this person a performance improvement plan. Oh, and, yeah, man. and so you're Google searching how to manage people and trying to figure that out. So I kind of, the thing I really appreciate about Grace is they gave me tremendous grace as I was figuring out how to lead people. And it was honestly, I think I was like 23. I just moved in this management position, overseeing people and had to let a 45-year-old man go with four kids. Who was like a full-time uh, graphic designer. Wow. Yeah. In the bu- and I just remember thinking, like, this is stupid. And, but there was budget cuts, there was crisis. It was, like, the right call. I didn't like making the call, but I went to someone who was a part of a redemption church and said, hey, can you walk me through how to fire someone who's a grown-ass man? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who, like, I'm yeah. not just saying, like, this is... And so, so I kind of got a lot of those lumps, and grace gave me a ton of experience, probably that I shouldn't have had
1: at that age. <laughs> So, really, I mean, you really got to flex, like, and develop the business muscle side of things right there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it was unpleasant. I didn't have a ton of training. I kind of knew how you're supposed to treat people. I knew that people have skills. And you want to maximize them. You don't want to bottleneck them. You don't want to micromanage them. At best, you're, like, leading with your heart, and that's inspiring people to work hard. You're not micromanaging them into efficiency. Like, I didn't want to do the Henry Ford thing, like, <laughs> yeah. but I did want to do the... Hey, God made you who you are. That doesn't mean that everything a part of you is good, but we want to grow who you are. Yeah. And then Luke Simmons called me. I'd never met him before. And it's like, hey, we're looking to hire someone who can preach and who can lead. And Tyler Johnson gave me your name. And so going back to cartel and Tyler, Tyler giving given Luke my name as someone who's a candidate that they're trying to hire. So I came on a staff at Redemption Gateway, and I was the first external hire. That was actually four years ago. Okay. And they were about... Seven years old at a time and seven and a half years old at the time. I was the first external hire. I was the first external hire redemption as a whole had made in like a long time. And so I got folded into
1: redemption church. Sweet man. What was what was redemption like at that point? Like uh I remember um I started going there shortly after you were hired and we were meeting in like a Strip mall kind of situation. What was what was the church like then? And is it related at all to how? Have you listened to Startup, the podcast? I have, yeah. Have you listened to the? I episodes? listened to the one on church planning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talk. About, let's let's talk first about like where Redemption was then, and then I, I do want to touch on this podcast because it's interesting.
0: So Redemption's a little bit complicated in that it's a multi-congregational church, which is a structure unlike any other church I've seen or been a part of, and so that's something we can come back to later. But the local expression that I was a part of was Redemption Gateway, which at the time was maybe a thousand people and we had a staff, I don't know, we could sit in like a, we had three, like two by eight tables and we could put them in a triangle and I'll sit around it. And so we used the language of like right before I came, they talked about it like it was a golfing foursome Mm -hmm. where everyone watched everyone else swing. Someone was driving the cart. But there was kind of a, we're all in this together. We all know everyone's business. You shoot the breeze. It's that real small, small, like you have four to six people, right? And they just kind of graduated from the golfing foursome to the basketball team (laughs) where there was specialization, there were positions, there were bench players, there were starters. I'm
2: trying to think of where we are in this analogy. Probably the basketball team.
0: Yeah. (laughs) When I look at the size of your office, it kind of looks like basketball team and, and it is part of the hard th- things of the basketball team is you have centers over here working on their stuff and you have point guards over there working on their stuff and you have specialization, which means that there's not everyone has all the information. Whereas when you're golfing, everyone has all the information. Yeah. yeah. Silos. Yeah. And then you go to basketball and all of a sudden not everyone knows all the information and not everyone is playing all the time. And there is a, when's it my turn and whose turn is it? And some people take more shots than others and it's hard. And then probably in the last four years, we've gone from being a basketball team to being a high school football team to now probably being like a, a division three football team. <laughs> and by that, I mean, like there's, we now have over 40 staff members. We have staff members doing things that I don't even know what they do. Yeah. Like the, the tech side, the AV side. Um, our kids' team by itself is five people. Our students' team by itself is like six people. And so it's just impossible for me to actually know the details of what everyone's doing. Yeah, and It's impossible for them to know the details of, details of what the leaders are doing. But there's a tremendous sense of loss because a lot of them were around the church as volunteers before they came on staff. And previously they knew everything. And now there's a lot they don't know. And so there's a grieving process that comes with scaling that people who used to know everything, now they don't know everything. Yeah. And that's frustrating.
2: Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm resonating with so many of the things you're saying, not not because we've gone to that scale, but, like, as you grow, like, it's, it's not really relevant for everyone to be a part of every conversation. And you start realizing that, like, everyone kind of has their role and you need to kind of double down on that specialization. But battling the, the silos and the information, you know, keeping it flowing from person to person and department to department are really challenging things. Yeah, it makes the need to do culture
0: work way more intentional uh-huh. Yeah, because when you have like four to 10 people, you don't need to think, how are we going to maintain culture? Because you're all in one room, you're all friends yep, and you go to lunch and you can all sit around one or two tables. But now we're having to think through like culture is something that we have to really fight for, not something that we just get to have by virtue of being who we are. Right. Like generally, if you're a healthy person, you can keep your culture what you want it to be when you're under 12 people. Yeah. But once you get past that, especially once you're past 40, it's not something that we can take for granted. And so we have experienced these culture gaps where there's people who feel purposefully excluded or people who feel uh, like leaders are inaccessible. And to a degree, there is purposeful exclusion because you're in this meeting, you're not in this meeting. Mm Yep. But it's not on the basis of who they are. It's on the basis of efficiency and we can't have every meeting be a 40-person meeting. Yeah. And so then there's all of these gaps of communication. And so we're on Slack and it's who's on which channel. And then you end up having these channels that are just bloated. And so they're not working. And so then you end up sending tons of direct messages. and You're not posting it on, the, on the channel and it's kind of defeating the whole purpose. And so there's just constant, like, uh, I would say that we're all as a whole team kind of doing grief avoidance in an unhealthy way that there has to be like an embracement of grief. Otherwise we're constantly going to be getting in other people's lanes, filling our mind in our creative space with stuff that doesn't belong to me. Cause if I need to be creative in direction a, and I am filling my mind with tons of BCDE and F and G, I may want to know that, but it's not actually helping me do my job. Yep. And, and that's like a grief avoidance that if I keep wanting to know everything,
2: mm-hmm.
0: then I'm really just avoiding grief.
2: So uh, for a business like ours, uh, typically new business motivates growth. So like we obviously try not to hire lots of staff that we don't need to fulfill current projects. Um, is it as similar like revenue generation is how you lead growth or well, how, how does growth happen in a church? Well, that's kind of interesting, especially in the
0: church, because I wouldn't say that numeric growth or financial growth is a um, a first level goal in that I think it's tempting for a church because we could start pandering to a certain audience mm-hmm. and grow faster than we want to. Sure, um, but I would say that there are like people in our church. We want them to feel comfortable inviting their friends and family to church, not necessarily so that we can grow the budget or grow. So it's, it's, especially in a church, which I don't think is necessarily the same with the business. It may be at a certain point where you go like, Hey, our business is, we do $5 million a year and that's all we really want to do. Cause more than that means we have to do X, Y, and Z. Definitely. I don't want
2: to really want to live that way. Yeah. Yeah. We we call that a lifestyle business. Like people that like scale to a certain extent and they're like, I'm making a lot of money. Uh, You know, if you were running a profitable business that did $5 million a year, you could optimize that to be profitable and not stressful for you personally. That can totally make sense. Um, for a church, I can see what you're saying though. It's like, it really is a nonprofit organization, right? So profits, not the leading factor, but like, I can almost relate to what you're saying and admit, correct me if I'm wrong in thinking this, but like for us, there's certain business that is better for us. And there's certain business that isn't like projects and things like that. Like, and I'm sure in some ways, certain, um, uh, people, I guess, like contribute more financially than others, but you can't let that be a motivating factor to serve them differently. Right.
0: Yeah. And in particular, like our senior leaders decidedly avoid knowing who gives what. That's like, we really super don't, we really don't want to know that. Cause I don't want to think if I say X from the stage, then Billy and Susie are out and they give X number of dollars. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's totally unhealthy. Even James too talks about the sin of partiality and giving special treatment to big givers. And so like, I don't know, I don't know a, a list of our cool. top 10 givers in order. I don't know that. And that's really on purpose because I we want to be able with a clear conscience to say what we think the scripture is saying and apply it to our cultural moment without it being like an anxious sales experience. And so there is a sense in which obviously if more people come to the church and more people tithe, the more people give, then we can hire talented people to create more ministries. Mm-hmm. Like we just hired um, someone who I really respect and I'm excited about named Vicky, And she's creating this lay counseling team and working with domestic abuse victims. And that's like an example of an opportunity that comes. Like, I think that's going to be really good for our community, not just oh, good for yeah. our church. That's legit. That's good for like Queen Creek. That's good for mm-hmm. Gilbert. Yeah. The fact that we have her on staff developing people is good for everyone, not just good for us. Yeah. And so there is a sense in which increased giving leads to opportunities. Yeah, new programs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, new programs that really serve people,. Really help people. but it's uh, we don't want the tail to wag the dog. We really kind of want to love our people as effectively as we can, form them in Christ-likeness as effectively as they can. And if that leads to economic growth, then that's kind of a second or third tier byproduct. Yeah. But if, if like in our current culture moment, there's things we see going on regarding race or sexuality, and they're deeply divisive topics. But if I'm tied to economics and not to the scriptures, which I say that my job is to teach the Bible, right? then my conscience will be tied up in economics, not in trying to sit under the scriptures and tell people what the scriptures say. Right, yeah. And And so that's what I'd say is kind of the the interesting thing with the church, because there's the one side and we, I think about it like this, the church is a family and all families. And we think there's like a, the metaphor we like to use is like, there's trellis and there's vine. Like a, a vine without a trellis can only grow so big because it can get like three or four inches off the ground. But with the trellis, the vine can grow big and the vine can bear lots of fruit, but the trellis does serve the vine. The vine does not serve the trellis. And so Increased giving, increased structure, increased programs are us building bigger trellises. But ultimately, the real thing is the vine. And similar with families, you know, your family has a calendar, your family has a budget, your family has plans, your family has communication practices, your family has other business-like things. But ultimately, those are meant to serve the culture of the family. They're not the end in of themselves. Yeah. And so our programs, our calendars, our budgets are meant to serve the culture of the family. They're not meant to be the end of themselves. And so we're really trying to make the culture the main thing, our family environment where we know people, see people, love people, um, encourage one another to love, forgive, call people on their crap, mm-hmm. in love, not bombastically. And this kind of goal to become more like Jesus is the centerpiece goal. And all these other infrastructure things serve that goal. Yeah. And if that means that we're limited to eight hundred people, if that means we're limited to eight thousand or eighty thousand or eighty, different churches
1: do that differently. Yeah. How and many so, members are at Gateway when you arrived? Um, I'm not sure I'm
0: not sure about like formal covenant members, yes, yeah. but it seemed like it was about a thousand a Sunday. Okay. And then back in February pre COVID it was knocking on the door of two thousand. Nice. We had almost twenty seven hundred or something I don't know the exact numbers. Pastors are prone to exaggerating. We played it. And <laughs> yeah. so I don't know, we're yeah. encroaching on 3,000 at Easter, something like that, which is Easter's Easter. And it's hard to tell because nowadays, most folks, uh, and by nowadays, I don't mean coronavirus days, but I mean in the 21st <laughs> century, people like on average who said, I'm a part of this church, came to church on average like 1.7 to 2.2 times a, su- a week, a month, I mean. So on any given Sunday, you have about 60% of the people who say they're part of that church. Got it. Whereas on Easter Sunday, you kind of, everyone who thinks they're part of the church comes to that day. So if you go based on that number, it's maybe approaching 2,500, 3,000. Based on like last Sunday in the COVID online streaming thing, we had about 1,100 people. Mm -hmm. Maybe in February on a typical Sunday, we had 19 to 2,000. So, yeah, it depends how you track it and how you look at it. You know, yeah. we have 600 families that give on a regular basis. Yeah. So, whatever, you can count it a lot of different ways. Right. 600 families, X number of views. Yeah. It's hard to tell.
1: I mean, a couple of years ago, you guys made a pretty big decision to build a beautiful new building and really make a run for it. I mean, just talk about like how your role has shifted from when you arrived to where you're at now, because it seems like. A lot of things have ramped up. You guys have hired a lot more. There's just there's more people to tend to. Um, there's more infrastructure. Like how how have you helped like guide the the systems and everything forward?
0: Yeah, I think my my predominant skill sets are one preaching and two uh like staff leadership or mm-hmm. the way I think about that is discovering, developing and deploying. Kind of think about like in three tiers, like in a, a pyramid discovering gifts, developing gifts, deploying gifts, doing that with staff and higher level volunteers, I feel like is one of my main skill sets. And so uh, I kind of, when I first joined, I had two direct reports, which even that was interesting because they're both generally better humans than me and, <laughs> and more experienced. But like, so one of them was like a counseling pastor and he was, you know, had suffered tremendously, tons of education, super sharp. Another guy, who's still on staff, John, who's an excellent hospital presence. But my gifting as the young guy was more leadership maximization strategy. And so it's more evidence of their humility with being willing to be led by some
2: kid who just barely stopped picking his nose, Sure, yeah, <laughs> you know, and we have those situations where we hire people that are older than us and it is complicated. I mean, like it is weird to, to, I don't know make decisions about their lives. And that's what you're just saying. Like you, you can make decisions that affect them
0: in a large way. Yeah. And both those guys are great guys. One of them ended up leaving, uh, to kind of take a, a promotion at a different church. And that was fine. You know, it's some of that's like discerning fit and how you can work for people. And, and that's, uh, something that as a leader, it demonstrates to you how secure you actually are. You know, when someone says, I don't want to follow you. I want to follow that guy. You're like, okay, that's great. Yes, yeah. I thought I was awesome, but I guess, <laughs> I guess I'm guess i not that awesome. But it's a healthy process. So now it went from two two people leading an adult team to now, I don't know how many direct reports I have, uh, but there's been a lot of transition. We had a solid guy on our staff leave to go and start a new church in North Phoenix, so I absorbed his team. We shifted a couple roles around. I actually stepped into a kid's pastor role that I wasn't expecting. It's the only role I haven't done in a church, but I just hired someone. And so there's, I feel like the last 18 months I've been in a constant state of looking for talent, reorging. And it's, there's a quote from this book by a guy named Stanley McChrystal, his book, Team of Teams, where he talks about-
1: Yeah, Stan was, uh, what was he? the, uh, For what, uh, the Obama administration, he was what, the the chief of the military? I don't know what the term is. He's one of those-
0: Yeah, military guy. Yeah, big deal. Yeah. Uh, The whole idea in that book was, that when you're facing a unified enemy, you can like have a front, but so much of like the, the wars in the Middle East, especially with ISIS, you're not, you're facing, you're fighting against teams. So you have to decentralize, push decision-making down to the local level. And there's a real decentralized vision for authority that you have to do to succeed as a military because you're constantly running things up the food chain. It's too late. And so you break off in these team of teams. But anyway, one of the things he says is that organizations must constantly be led. Like, there is no neutral. There is no coasting. And I feel like, uh, at least in my current role, it must constantly be led. And anytime I find myself feeling like, ah, cruise control, like, that lasts for, at best, nine days. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, back on the horse, got to keep driving. And part of it's that culture work. Like, I got to keep fighting for the culture. I got to keep getting lunch with people knowing people, loving people, not because that's a means, because that's like the goal of the church. It's not just like, I got to do this. Otherwise it's not a means, but it's like, this is the real work of the church. Yeah. And if we can't do it at scale, then we don't want to do it. Do you burn out from that? Uh, It depends what you mean by burnout. If you mean like, uh, if there's days I wake up and like, I don't want to go work today. No. If it means like compassion fatigue, like sitting with suffering people again and again and again and you kind of, your heart gets calloused. Yeah, I'm And sure. the people that you want to weep with, you find you can't because you're tired from weeping a little bit, a little bit. But I also don't feel like that's all on my shoulders. Like I feel like our, our staff team is pretty great in that I think a lot of us, like I think everyone on the staff team feels that responsibility. And so on everyone's job description and what I talk to people about their job, it's the number one job on their deal, whether their job is to in kids on Sunday mornings or their job is to make sure the plants aren't dying or their job is to lead student ministries. Everyone's job is culture making, mm-hmm. whether it's this task or that task is like the main thing you do. We're all building the culture. And so that's kind of nice is I, it's not just me constantly pursuing people, but it goes multi-direction. And so I don't, I feel like it's all of our responsibility. And even though like Luke, who's my boss, obviously bears the predominant responsibility because he's in charge. There's like not a sense in which, oh, that's Luke's problem. So there is a all hands on deck aspect to that.
1: Yeah. Well, so what's it been like this year leading a church in 2020 that has been different from previous years? Like what challenges are you guys dealing with this year that – obviously covid right like there's that there's the race issues there's the political climate there's all this, all sorts of things right now that are probably things that aren't uh on the forefront of people's minds every year so how do you guys navigate those things this year compared to how you know how you have previously dealt with them
0: yeah on the one hand it's not really any different than any business there's like a well pivot or die yeah that i think a lot of businesses dealt with and you're going, okay, well, if meeting in person is not an option, which in Arizona, meeting in, op- in person as a church was always an option. That was never totally off the table. We were always given the exception. But there is like a love your neighbor aspect to risk management that we felt responsible to, especially those first couple of months. But that whole idea of, I was joking, our architect came by the other day. We just built this nice $10.5 million building that's just beautiful space. And he came by and I said, look at this terrible video studio you created (laughs) because we literally spent a bunch of money on podcast gear, video equipment, lots of fork, like tons and tons of like video production stuff. And you're like, I'm sitting in this beautiful church building and it's just a bad video studio. And so there's, we're joking for a while that we're just bad televangelists.
2: Oh my gosh. As a
0: church, because that's (laughs) kind of what you had to become. And so there's that goal of, I want to keep our current people connected. And also this is a disorienting, pandemic As, you know i saw a headline the other day that was like 2020 is 1918 plus uh 1964 plus uh, what was the other big one the big uh so it's a pandemic recession when did the, when did the stock market crash was that 1918
2: oh you're talking about the, the uh, great Depression. Recession. the great depression depression yeah, yeah i think that's the 30s
0: Yeah. So it's like 1918 plus 1930 something plus 1964. You have Spanish flu, global pandemic, 1918. You have the great depression, 1930s. You have the civil rights act, 1960s. And so you have like three of the most traumatic eras in world history combining to happen in 2020. Yeah. It
2: is wild how these very separate issues all happened at once.
0: And so ordinarily when people feel disoriented, they're going, how can I go be oriented? And they, that's like a gigantic time. Like churches in New York City grew tremendously after 9-11 because
1: mm-hmm.
0: there's both the, on the one hand, why would God allow this? On the other hand, I kind of believe he's there even if I'm mad at him. The fact that I'm angry at him for allowing this kind of makes me feel like... Validates he, his existence. Yeah, it kind of validates his existence. And so people go to church looking for answers. In, th- in this situation, people could not go to church looking for answers. They had to go to our website and watch our bad videos. And I, <laughs> I don't mean bad videos. I think... Our video team does a great job. But, I mean, (laughs) bad in that nobody signed up to be a video person. And it wasn't until, like, a month and a half ago that we actually hired a video person. But it was everyone else kind of pivoting. Like, Jeremy, who's our AV guy, is tremendously gifted. And he's good at videos. But running an entire – obviously, like, our AV guy became the most important person at our time. Yeah, I'm
2: realizing how uh, certain careers in every – global recession or certain business types or something become so in demand while the rest of the world isn't doing well. And that makes so much sense at that position. He was probably getting calls in multiple directions like, hey, everyone needs video services right now. Yeah, That's wild. That is. Yeah. So the nice thing, we saved a lot of money on
0: kids' snacks, saved a lot of money (laughs) on air conditioning. So we could buy some nice equipment and he did a great job and we added some people to his team. But that management was hard, especially because a lot of people who like what we hired him for was being good culture makers, being good in the room, being good at walking the halls, learning names, all of a sudden, like they're on Zoom calls all day. And so they're like presence in a room, culture making skill, which is what makes them awesome. All of a sudden, like the best thing about most of our staff was kind of taken off the table and it became about content generation. And again, like I talked about content's not bad, but it's the culture of the church. That's the, that's the heart. It's not the content. Content serves culture. Trellis serves vine. And so it was really frustrating. I remember going and telling my wife like in May. Like I remember when I used to like my church oh, like three months ago. Because I signed up because I love being in the space with the people. I feel like Christianity is a very fleshly religion. And I don't mean that negatively, but I mean like the whole point of Christianity is like Jesus came in the flesh. You take communion in the flesh. You gather together family metaphor, like there's all this actually being present. It's not like the Gnostics who are first century her- heretical group thought that like Christianity was about secret knowledge that helps you escape the gross earth. But it's like the opposite of the biblical story where Jesus comes to earth. He takes on flesh. He suffers. He dies. He rises all in the body. And so this really embodied deal, when you see that taken away, like we saw suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, skyrocket in our middle school and high school group and it was basically even before the rest of the church gathered we decided that not gathering for that group of people was a greater risk than gathering mm. wow and so they came back before our sunday so we kind of talked about saving the risk for students and then we canceled everything besides students and sundays we're talking about saving the risk for students and sundays part of it's trying to teach our people to do real risk economics you know what you yeah. how do you save your risk how do you spend your risk and tr- trying to help people see that the church is a essential service, not a non-essential service. Mm-hmm. Which even that distinction is annoying to me in our cultural moment. Mm-hmm. That there's my sister's been a bartender and has worked every day <laughs> essential service, which I'm happy for her. But I think bartending yeah. is essential service. Is demonstrates that that term means nothing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you guys, you're you're not like a standalone church, though. I mean, you guys belong to a greater congregation of churches, right? Can you describe that model? Basically, it's a, it's a very unique business model uh, or operational model that you were telling us before really doesn't exist anywhere else.
0: Yeah, it's part of what I love about Redemption is there is, even though, so like the annual budget's like, I don't know, $12 million with like 150 staff members, 10 local congregations, and that's different than other multi-site churches because a lot of multi-site churches, there's like a a mother campus, And then they, by means of video, pump out the preaching to the other campuses. Satellite campus? Yes, their satellite model. And so a lot of those, their franchise models are copy and paste. And so that would be more like church as brand name. But Redemption, we really try to talk about Redemption Church as a family name, not as a brand name. And so our different 10 congregations, there are local, there's local preachers and there's local elders over every congregation. And so we're unified in doctrine and vision, but... Frankly, the way that God designed that leader in that culture, it's going to play out different. So, each local Redemption Church should look like Redemption Church under that leadership and under and in that context. And so, if my boss, you know, got hit by a bus and I came in charge, it would start to feel different. Not necessarily because I have a different quote vision, but because I'm different than Luke. And so, the fact that I'm different than Luke means the church is going to feel a little different. I don't really know how that would be. But it's just reality. Same if, if I went over and was in charge of redemption Alhambra, it would totally change the congregation. And if Wayne Winter came over to in charge of Gateway, it would totally change the congregation. And so it's under that leadership, in that context, Alhambra is totally different in, than the Southeast suburbs. And so if you went to these different churches, you'd see the same branding, the same kind of doctrine, culture, vision. But culturally, it'd be a pretty different experience. And so we have one bank account. We have one HR person. We have one central pastor of operations. We have one communication director. And so there's a sense in which we have like the same uh, heart, the same head, and mm-hmm. the same like spine, but we're all pretty functionally different. Even in size, we have churches that are about 80 people, churches up to 3,000. And it's not like the goal for the 80 person church is to become a 3,000 person church. Sure. But it's like in that neighborhood, in that context, They're trying to create a culture that they think is faithful, just just like we are.
1: The demographics must be very different from one to the next in some circumstances, right?
0: Yeah, very different. And so even you talked about 2020, even talking about the issue of race, where we have congregations that are pretty different, both in terms of um, ethnicity, also in terms of economic status, also in terms of political... um, instincts or ideations. And then this one family is trying to have a conversation about the extent and degree of systemic racism, where it is, where it isn't. And it it's actually really helpful because you actually can see where the places where the Bible is silent and we're reading our culture or our, our background or upbringing into things. And it actually helps you kind of see more clearly. And there's also like even though I I see the Bible as being an objective revelation, we're always encountering as subjects. And so person X's background and experience of oppression is going to change the way they hear the story of Pharaoh oppressing the Jews, whereas someone else's suburban non-oppressed background is going to change the way they hear the story of God saving Israel into religious freedom. Out, out of oppression from the Egyptians. I know that, that
2: sounds so obvious when you say it like that, but it's almost like, I don't know, opening my mind a little bit right now just to think that like I think of um, the Bible as like it is what it is, but from different past experiences and backgrounds, people can interpret things or maybe even just simply emph- emphasize areas of higher importance and things like that.
0: Yeah, well, it's just like Kyle is who he is. I have experiences of him. That are true and real. Yeah. But you have experienced them that are true and real. Yeah. And based on your guys' working relationship, you see parts of Kyle I don't see.
2: You know, and C.S. Based Lewis on Kyle... talks about this. Yeah. And he says yeah. that, like, A and B could never experience um, each other entirely. But by introducing C, yes. you can experience each other more deeply. And uh, I think you're hinting to that, and it's really totally true from my experience and very interesting. As we introduce new people into our group, because it has been small, bringing new people in exposes other people's talents we had never seen before, Mm -hmm. draws out challenges and weaknesses that we might not have known people might have. It's totally interesting how group dynamics help reveal and grow and expose weaknesses of individuals
0: yeah and so the multi-congregation reality is really helpful and so i'm not a relativist in that i'm saying the real kyle doesn't exist <laughs> but i do think the Will real, the
2: real co- kyle please stand yeah, up yeah,
0: yeah. but the real kyle does exist but we subjectively experience him in context and so we do this thing every wednesday where about i think it's 10 days out from when we preach a text all the preachers from the 10 different congregations come together and say, so we're all talking about John 3, 1 through 8. We've all read the commentaries. We've all studied the original languages. We've all done our systematic theological work. But we all see different things in the text. And I think John is who he is. John said what he said. There's a real objective knowability to the scriptures. But how that bridges to our cultural moment, people in different contexts see different things. And it's remarkably shaping, and it really helps you actually challenge your cultural assumptions your sociological assumptions. And so I feel like I actually see more in the text because of the diversity of that table than I would Mm -hmm. otherwise by far. And again, that's not a relativism. That's just a reality that we we encounter objective reality as subjects all the time. And so that perspectivalism is really helpful. Dude. Well said. Yeah. And so, so that's the multi-congregational beauty of I think redemption church is especially because our product is the culture And even using that word product makes me feel a little icky. Yeah. (laughs) But like the thing we're shooting for is like a a culture that's faithful to the spirit and the scriptures and is representing Jesus to the world well. That's what we're doing. And a big gigantic part of that is doctrine. But more of that's about love, how we treat each other, our curiosity, our humility, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. So it's more about a quality of relationship than it is about – it's not less than doctrine. It's just so much more than that. And so having these people who are all part of the same, quote, family, same, quote, 501c3, but expressed differently in different contexts actually isn't just about saving resources because we have a central ops, but it also makes the different cultures better than they would have been if they're existing on their own. It's like Redemption Gateway gets a better Seth because I sit with uh, the other congregations, And have relationships with them because i'm growing in a a diverse in a a good way setting yeah that's very interesting
1: how do you guys so you were saying that your redemption east mesa location has a good portion of people that are immigrants right
0: west mesa wait west mesa i'm sorry not east mesa west mesa yeah
1: and then you have alhambra totally different demographic there Gilbert and Gateway, different demographics, like knowing that your guys' core product is to introduce people to Jesus and help them grow in relation to them, how do you deal with all the stuff that these people are bringing in and how do you guys manage that cross, uh, like across all the different cam- all the different campuses, knowing that everyone's bringing in completely different experiences?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So part of it is it's hard. Like, I'll sit in people's counseling rooms, and they'll say, I'm afraid that if I come to church, I'll be judged for blank. Mm-hmm. And I say, you know what? A bunch of sinners show up to church every Sunday, so that's probably true. And I think they're expecting me to say, no, that won't happen. People won't judge you. Our church is great. And you're like, yeah, you're, <laughs> you're like, right.
2: These are people. And yeah, guess <laughs> what?
0: Everyone who shows up on Sunday is a huge sinner who's shaped by their culture more so than the Bible. Uh, and that's true for me. That's true for you too. It's true for everyone in our church. And so there's trying to model, one, I'd say trying to model an in-process reality. Like there's no sense of anyone here's arrived. And if really the only disqualifying thing from being like a, Part of Gateway is the belief that you've arrived. Mm -hmm. And so even there's like this really intense thing we talk about called church discipline, which is when we tell people, um, you can't be here anymore. And that is really only not because everyone's sinning all the time every day, every week, but it's only when people dig their heels in and they're hurting other people and they refuse to stop. Yeah. Not like I'm trying and I can't, but like a meh. There's like a hard hardness, So it's really like being casting a vision for being in progress, trying to model that as leaders, I think is important. That's one. Two is we have developed, this is one of my first projects when I came to Gateway Redemption was developing a rigorous, rigorous is a way overstated. It's a five week class, but it's a, a deliberate, there's a better word than rigorous, a deliberate onboarding process where people experience our doctrine and our culture so that people can opt out if they don't want to do it. Mm. And one of the things we say in that is, hey, there are other great churches besides redemption. We don't have the corner on the market of yeah. faithful church, but we kind of are who we are, and we're doing it the way we want to do it. And one of the goals in this class... So if people sign up, hey, I want to put down roots chair, I want to be part of this church. You say, okay, take this class. And people go through it, and I frame the class as like it's dating. One of the wins of dating is that you get enough information to know you don't want to marry that person, so you opt out. Like a dating relationship that ends is successful in part because you're going like, I learned what I want to learn and I don't want to marry that. Another way to think of dating is marriage if the dating process includes you learning what you need to know to know you actually want to marry that person. And so we tell people, I know a lot of you like heard three great sermons and you just want to become members, but we want to make sure you have all the information, all the experience that you have to actually make the decision like, yes, I want to be part of this place. Or no, I want to go somewhere else. And so trying to remove the shame mm-hmm. that people would – of leaving, I don't want people to feel like, hey, I went through the class. I don't want to be a part of it. Like I actually see that as a good thing because, hey, they were trying to create this culture. They don't want to be a part of creating a culture like that. That church over there has a different vision for their culture, and I think you'd fit there. And that's Okay. And so it's kind of like you talked about, Tyler, earlier. Like there's certain business that's good for us, certain business is bad for us.
2: Yeah, I didn't want to bring that back up because I didn't know if it was inappropriate to compare it to a, like a project with revenue that we might think, but we think of business that, that grows us and is healthy for our team. And we even have like pretty clear qualifying factors for like- Taking on a new client and taking on new projects. Exactly, because not all business is positive for us. If people want things that we can't offer, aren't interested in offering, like stretching into those zones- not a great experience for us and not the direction we need to grow in. So you guys it's, I mean, it's like, I don't know if you've heard the term product market fit, but it's like startup culture is like you're, you're developing a product. You're trying to find a market, you're tuning it and optimizing it to fit that market and make sure that it aligns with the vision you had in the first place still. Um, but it's kind of what you're describing is like your product market fit. And at a certain point you have to be confident in that product and how it fits a certain market but not everyone and that's okay
0: yeah so i think there is parallel there and i appreciate your sensitivity to appropriate inappropriate (laughs) but i think there is a a reality that uh there's people who maybe come to you guys and want a website and you tell them like hey just go to squarespace and click a prefix and you'll save a ton of money and it's ultimately better for you if you did that it's no offense like hey what you want is not bad but you're not going to get it from us. Exactly. And so there is that sense too, like a lot of times what people want, we're going, that's not bad, but you're not going to get it here. Sometimes it is bad. In that case, we feel compelled to say like, Hey, I don't think you should go to a church where they just never say anything. You don't want to hear because (laughs) you're basically saying, I already believe everything that's good, right. And true. And nobody's anything to teach me. And that's not a good position. And so it's not like we're just like, see you later. If you don't, want to be pushed on, but there is like a sense in which we're going, here's the, here's the vision we're trying to cast. And there are people who go, who have different flinches on stuff or different cultural values or even different, just philosophies that I don't think are fundamentally unfaithful or bad. But I think as we kind of clarify who we are, who our elders are, who our pastors are, who our ministry team is, you get a little more secure in who you are and who you're not. And that actually helps you not feel threatened when people opt out.
2: Yeah. How much feedback and insight do you have through the participants um, thought process when they're going through this, or are they just kind of weeding themselves out without um, conversations about these things? Yeah, sometimes
0: like, so once people have said, I want to be a member here and they go, they jump into this process, they're usually pretty communicative. And so there's always like a given percent of attrition that's just like so-and-so vanished or... Their job relocates them against their will. You never hear from them again. And then they send you a message seven months later, oops, sorry about that. You know, I got moved to Prescott or something. But a lot of times, especially if folks are coming, I would say experienced Christians who really kind of know where they dot the I's and cross the T's doctrinally, they'll have a lot of particular questions. A lot of Christians who have been in big churches before will ask a lot of questions about where the money goes, who oversees that what the lady versus staff oversight process is. And so people are pretty communicative and it's helpful for newer Christians or people who don't have tremendous amounts of experience. They tend to just be like, this place helped me grow in my faith. I'm in. I like you guys. Lead me. Not like in like a dumb blind sheep sense, but they're going They're They've unfortunately the more experience people have in the church that the better consumers of church they become and there's like a, a critic lens that goes on. Cause once you've listened to 5,000 sermons, you're,
2: you're a savvy shopper. You're a savvy shopper. Yeah. I mean like if you're, if you're entering into any complex buying decision, you have, uh, you have all the, the factors that you need to first educate yourself on to know what they are and then weigh the pros and cons of each factor. I mean, it's like, it's like, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm dehumanizing the human elements of this by comparing it so much to a purchasing process. But in a lot of ways it kind of is that someone who has purchased three or four homes is going to have a lot more detailed questions than the first time home buyer. Yeah. Or someone who's uh, given to organizations in the past and then seen the money not spent well is probably going to really care about like as a, as a nonprofit, not just solely as a church, but like how do you guys organizationally deploy this and do it in some way that is, Uh, efficient enough for it to be useful.
0: Yeah. Or similarly, to use a more relational example, but I think that totally applies. It's like if you've been married to three guys before and they all three turned out abusive, you're going to freaking be really careful (laughs) dating that fourth guy. Yeah. You know, I trusted this guy and then this happened or I trusted this guy and then he took all my money. I trusted this guy and then he manipulated me. And so especially people have been... So it's not all people become critical consumers, but sometimes just people suffer at the hands of the church and there's an apprehension to trust quickly. Wow. And so it's relational, not necessarily just consumptive, but yeah, it's like the more experience you have doing something, the more experience you have to do something. Yeah. And it, but it's also similar. Like, uh, the last car I bought, I researched the least on it cause I just didn't feel like it. I just went with a gut choice and was like, I probably could have done more research. I was talking about my buddies. He's been researching what TV he wanted to buy for like five months. And I'm like, I walked into Costco, saw that one's on sale, put it in the cart, and he's like, "You've got to be kidding me! You bought your TV, thinking about it for a total of 46 seconds." I'm like, "Yeah," and it's still working five years later. And guess what? Next TV I buy, I'll do the same thing, And <laughs> because it's been fine. Like until I've until I experience pain from buying a TV like that, I'm gonna keep buying TVs like that. So, so I think there's a lot of people who like really trust their gut. They walk in, they get a feel, they hear a couple sermons, they're like, "I'm in." Other people, because of past pain, or even because of like consumptive problems like they're trying to do the Burger King, have it your way church. So some of it might be bad. Some of it may be suffering, uh, but I don't, we don't know people's stories yet when they show up. And so we try to create as patient and gracious
1: environment as it can, as they're showing Mm -hmm. up. Yeah. So I'm going to go into a bit of a different conversation now. That's great. <laughs> um, so CNN says a Christian is this, and Fox News says it's something else. How do you guys cut through? How do you guys cut through that noise? Now, I mean, I, I'm asking. I go to this church, so I, I know. I sit under really great preaching, and I know these things. But I feel like there's been times throughout history where being labeled a Christian has been um, easier to deal with than other times. Mm-hmm. How do you guys? How do you guys cut through some of that noise and Yeah, part of it and, and lead through a time like this where there are very staunch labels that I, the media will apply?
0: No, that's good. I think part of it is we try to speak, frankly, about how very often the media's goal is to make you anxious and afraid and keep watching so they can sell ads. Yeah. So we're not full blown fake news people, but we are a just recognize you're being sold ads. Whether you're on social media or yeah. on mass media. I hear people talk negatively about the media. Like people who watch mass media talk negatively about social media. People on social media <laughs> talk negatively about mass media. It's like it's all media and they're all selling you
1: ads. Yeah, just so you know. It's designed that way. That's how they make their money.
0: Yeah, they're they're tracking, they're monetizing. That's not I don't think that's inherently a problem unless you think it's not happening. It's not a conspiracy. It's just people monetizing themselves. and so on. And so the goal is to make you fearful, anxious. And the other thing too is what unifies people, unfortunately the easiest is shared enemies that if I don't really like you, but we both hate that guy. I like you all of a sudden. And so CNN will frame real Christians as people who blank and those fake Christians as people who blank. And Fox News do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that the Bible has a lot in it. And we think about how it's so easy to rip Bible verses out of context and make them say what you want them to say. It's so easy to take verses and put them into your presuppositions and to support your existing ideologies and say, oh, I'm a socialist. Here's a verse that sounds a little socialist. Or I'm a capitalist. Here's a verse that sounds a little capitalist. And so you're actually mining for verses that fit particular systematic elements. And so this idea of uh, the Bible being a series of bits that you place together or put together to fit under other headlines, rearranging it, saying... But a lot of the idea we try to do is talk about the Bible as one story, Mm -hmm. that the Bible is actually a meta-narrative, a worldview where god created the world is broken people are sinful Um, he made promises to a people who are supposed to be blessed to be a blessing but they failed to do so but then there was one person jesus who was the ultimate faithful jewish person he was actually blessed being a blessing he was blessed and he was murdered um, absorbing the wrath of sin on behalf and he's sending his church he's coming in and so there's this reality in which society or not even society the cosmos the universe is good because God made it but it's flawed because there's sin and so any type of things are all bad or things are all good explanations don't make sense of the complexity of reality and so we find that trying to talk about the Bible is this grand story that makes sense of all things in our lives all of our lives all of our instances only make sense in in narrative context and so trying to see the scripture as a narrative rather than as a one of the tools mm-hmm. in our tool belt and so this narrative vision for scripture that other things make sense of. And even trying to just uh, help people see like the, we all have this instinct to be validated, the confirmation bias. And unfortunately many of us as Christians use the Bible to just come up under a confirmation bias. And so the, the big idea in talking, like we just try to be as explicit about it as possible. Like, Hey, this is what's going on. Like we say exactly what you said at our church all the time. Like there's, people on CNN have their verses people on Fox News have their verses and we just don't want to do theology that way
1: that's interesting stuff man it's just so crazy right now with everything going on and um and I feel like when I it's like kind of saddening to see how it's had like how it's impacted some other churches and um I'm I'm glad you guys stick to that narrative and don't Sway from it. I think that's really important.
0: Yeah, I think we're doing our best. Yeah. I think, I mean, we're swayable people. Right. None of us are infallible, and so I don't want to paint a picture of Redemption Church is doing it better than yeah. anybody else because I don't necessarily think that's true. But I feel like we're we're trying, and at least that's trying to be explicit about our goal. It's like we tell people that, you know, the Jesus is King, which is political, but like the is how that plays out in terms of particular policy is not something the Bible often speaks to. In the details yeah so the bible is explicit about the requirement to care for the poor and the vulnerable but in a constitutional republic what that looks like in terms of policy its an economic a sociological a moral discussion you have people who really love the poor who are economic conservatives and you have people who really love the poor who are pretty leftist progressives and i don't want to judge any of their intentions but so i think those issues of policy are where I think the church needs to kind of be very slow to speak. Yeah. Because I'm, caring for the poor is not an option biblically. How that plays out in each individual's life, how that plays out in a in a government as complicated as America's is, is hard. And I don't want to pretend like that's just like a God says care for the poor. Therefore, vote Democrat or yeah, not a
2: simple conversation at all. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well. Wow. Well, we're coming up on time. Do you
1: guys want to call it? You have any more questions, Kyle? No, I don't know. Seth's such an interesting dude. You're you're getting your PhD right now too. How's that going?
0: I am. I'm on
1: phase one of
0: three of my dissertation, so I submitted phase one, which is like chapters one and three of a five chapter deal. And so, oh wow, I'm in a park mode right now, waiting to hear feedback before <laughs> I move on to phase two. That's wild. So it's great. I mean, I love learning. I love reading. I love studying. But the hoop-jumping academic machine is a little bit soul-crushing, yeah. if I'm honest. Yeah. So I'm going to enjoy having learned and enjoy having studied, but this uh, working on your footnotes thing is makes me kind of want to put my head through a glass wall. So <laughs> so I'll be excited to have done it. I, I would, I'm going to love teaching at a master's level, pastoral theology and church leadership. That's what I want to do. Yeah. I went to a great seminary called Phoenix Seminary, great theological training, great Exegetical training, but a lot of like the cultural church leadership stuff was uh, where obviously I think churches aren't as good at as they are at other stuff. Yeah. But that's something that I feel like I could really help at a seminary level. So I'm excited about what this degree is going to help me do or enable me to do. Yeah. Because in the in academy, the credentials required to do the stuff. It was three letters. Yeah. yeah. So I wouldn't really do it if it wasn't a means to an end. Yeah. Like the end is, I think, training pastors eventually so
2: that's a super productive and healthy outlook to yeah. uh getting a phd <laughs> like you have a specific roadmap and goal and you're ready to get the qualifications in order to achieve it and that's really yeah. wise
1: it's you're not purchasing one from gcu or anything like that <laughs> yeah no but it's tempting so yeah, no. yeah. yeah
0: and i think gcu makes you work for it there are other places that you really can purchase it i know A. yeah A. they hand out degrees like uh like natty lights down there, you know. <laughs> so did you go to uV?
2: no, I never graduated oh. i uh, I did a couple of semesters in community college, and um as you're describing like a love for learning but not a love for the system that learning kind of exists in, and um yeah, totally didn't fit the system and then once I came to some piece with that decision, started digging in in areas that I really wanted to learn, realized that that was. Entrepreneurship, but as a means to that end was website design and development. and yeah. it's helped us build what we have. Um, so I don't regret my path in any way, but it was it was through a process of like realizing that like I'm not working, this isn't working. school wasn't. and then uh, what am I going to do? and then finally finding something and then coming to terms with like okay, this is a path where it's never necessary to backtrack and go back to get that degree now. So here I am. yeah, I
0: think that's great. I think that the 40 degree as norm, something that's going to fade away pretty seriously in the next 30 years. We'll see. Especially as administrative budgets balloon and so many folks like you realize that I don't need this to be an entrepreneur. And as more and more boot camp type stuff becomes normed, I think that's going to be good for society because people are going to graduate with the skills they need. And instead of having 120K in student loan debt, they'll, they'll have a 6K student loan debt and I think that'll be ultimately good for everybody. I agree. Yeah. But I
2: also value education so much that I'm contributing to my daughter's, you know, education fund so that it's an option. I, that's yeah. where I really stand is like uh, giving people that option to pursue education, whether it's through the formal systems or through their independent learning. That's that's what I'm really encouraging.
0: Yeah. That's great. I'm going to give my son the option yeah. of joining the military and getting the GI Bill. <laughs> so that's his All option.
1: Right. Well, rock and roll, man. Sweet Thank man. you for joining us. Yeah. Can you uh, take a second and plug your podcast and talk about that?
0: Yeah, uh, my buddy Luke and I just started a podcast called King in Culture. We have two episodes so far. Maybe by the time this airs, we'll have three. We do two a month. and the big, You'll have I, four or five by then. Yes, yeah, yeah, the three-week delay typically. Oh, great. Well, yeah. maybe four then, yeah. <laughs> but our big idea is we're critiquing the hell out of culture. And so there's obviously heavenly as adjective, but there's hellish as adjective. And so humans are culture makers and... They make heavenly aspects of culture and they make hellish and so we're gonna critique the hell to culture. Which I was a tagline I'm way too proud of, but I'm excited about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, you definitely made that one up.
0: Yeah. Thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is yeah. great.